0: I am your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the August 11, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. American, no Today we're going national and global with local implications, mind you. Jessica Levinson, law school professor at Loyola University, gives insight into recent legal ruling on Texas' most restrictive voter identification law. How the ruling might affect North Carolina's voting law and how other states are trending since the Supreme Court's ruling in Shelby County versus Holder. That's as in Eric Holder. J Street's Allen Elsner offers him and offers in the second half his organization's perspective on the Iran nuclear power agreement amidst the American Israeli Public Affairs Committee's campaign to oppose a deal. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show, my first guest is Jessica Levinson, law school professor at Loyola University and vice president of the Los Angeles Ethics Commission. You see where we're going here, folks. She earned her Bachelor's of Arts and her law degree at Loyola Marymount University. Ms. Levinson served as a law clerk to the Honorable James V. Selna, practiced with the law firm of Simpson, Thacker & Bartlett, and now teaches a professor at Loyola Law School. She served as the director of political reform at the Center for Government Studies. Jessica Levinson's work focuses on election law and governance issues, including campaign finance, ethics, ballot initiatives, redistricting, term limits, and state budgets. She blogs at Polatix. I'm going to put that in on the uh, podcast summary. Everybody can follow that one. Dot ilse, dot edu. We'll get that out there. You can follow her on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. And among media outlets she's appeared on include a network television, National Public Radio, KNX, KPFK, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, and her latest opinion pieces uh, were in the Sacramento Bee. This one piece was just this last Sunday. The campaign money mess was the title. Her latest radio appearance as well, right here and now with us. Coming to us today from Los Angeles, I welcome to the show, Aunt, uh, Ask a Leader, Jessica Levinson. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to talk to you. Oh, we are excited because it's we, we always talk about literacy in the the public policy arena, and it's we've got to keep our eyes on the prize with the, the democratic process, which is a bit in peril with how restrictive so many states are with the ways to vote and such. So in June of 2013, the Supreme Court struck down Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act. We've covered this in different ways with with uh, Rick Hassan and some of the um, some of the social scientists here at, at on the campus well and with the, that particular ruling Chief Justice Roberts writing that the Voting Rights Act had done its job and declaring it time to move on however uh, intent on moving perhaps backwards several states were ready at that moment to push out voting laws that have proven to be very restrictive so uh, in fact uh, just a couple weeks ago, Gary Trudeau in the Doonesbury Strip recently reduced this entire civic lesson into just six comic strip panels. It was was amazing. So, Ms. Levinson, to what extent do you think that a significant number of votes were suppressed in the off-year election season in 2014? Well, I think, um, actually, the question is
1: how many votes that... How many votes at all, and then how many that made a difference? So, as we know, right. it doesn't have to be a significant number that were suppressed in order to change outcomes because we had a couple of pretty close elections. So, there's a, a great organization that I'm sure you've heard of called the Brennan Center, right? And um, they're out of NYU University and. They um, did a great study, you know, basically what happened in the wake of Shelby in 2014. And what they found is that the new voter ID laws that were implemented could have been a factor in electing Republicans to the U.S. Senate in North Carolina uh, and to the governor's offices in Florida and Kansas. So um, in North Carolina, for instance, the there was a Senate race where... Uh, the outcome change was, excuse me, the margin was about 1.7 percent, or 48,000 votes. So you don't need a significant suppression of votes in order to swing that election. Um, In Kansas, Governor Brownback won by a margin of about 2.8. That's 33,000 votes. And then uh, in Virginia, Senator Mark Warren, uh, Warner, excuse me, Um, won by about 0.6% of the votes, or just 12,000 votes. So in all these cases, all these states had more restrictive voter ID laws. Um, In all these cases, it's possible because so few votes actually determine the outcome um, that the new laws determine the outcome.
0: And it's strategic in terms of where the uh, American Legislative Executive Council and other uh, entities that have a very particular agenda, politically speaking, uh, where they've targeted and pushed out those restrictive voter laws. So it's sort of the, the battleground states figured heavily. I mean, Florida was one is one of the battleground states uh, that already, as you said, there's the outcome in 2014. So we'll, we'll get into the generalities of where those outcomes could be. But I wanted to turn our attention to the most recent uh, developments, that's first uh, the Texas voter ID law that was overturned first by Judge Ramos. However, uh, then a panel of three judges, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, that was three of them, the, the portion of the bench, not the whole, uh, not the, the panel of a the, port of the bench. They left a good deal of doubt about how much of the Texas law will actually be nullified after a round of, uh, of analysis um, that they wanted the first judge to consider. So what? Uh, could these talk about the the uh, intricacies of this ruling in Texas and what the what Texas must go back and reconsider in the very particular discussion of intent and uh, impact of the restrictive identification?
1: Sure. So uh, maybe it makes a little bit of sense to actually start. Yes. I know you introduced it, but with Shelby, because the yes. reason that the texas case is significant is it because it relies on section 2 of the voting rights act not section 5 so you know as you and your listeners know what happened in 2013 is that a uh, 5 to 4 majority of the court with justice roberts leading the charge um throughout section Four of the right. Voting Rights Act, which was the section that determined the
0: formula, and I i promise I'll stop using section numbers soon, but it's the... No, it's uh, important. We need to know which sections, because some are in and some are out, uh, effectively speaking.
1: Right. So, you know, maybe even to stay, take a step back further, the Voting Rights Act, landmark piece of civil rights legis- legislation in 1965, very effective, absolutely allows more minorities to vote, more minorities to be elected in office. And the centerpiece of the Voting Rights Act is that it has, um, among many other provisions, two provisions. One is section two that prohibits uh, intentional discrimination and uh, prohibits laws that have the intent and effect of discriminating against voters, certain voters. And then there's section five, which is the section that was at issue in Shelby County and section five essentially said there are a couple of jurisdictions localities and states and we think you have such a bad history of discrimination when it comes to voting that you have to check in with the federal government before you can make any changes and um, section the way we determined which jurisdictions had to quote unquote pre-clear or check in with the federal government Is that we had a formula under section 4 now um, the section 4 formula is what was invalidated by the Supreme Court in Shelby it wasn't actually section 5 as many people think but section 5 is essentially useless without it doesn't cover anything without a formula to determine which jurisdictions are subject to it so as a result of Shelby County a lot of jurisdictions like Texas and North Carolina that previously had to you know, pre-clear or check-in changes with the feds, with uh, with the federal government, no longer have to do so. So, what we're seeing now is that the new legislation that you and I talk, are talking about um, relies on Section Two, and that's um, one. It's it's harder for a couple of reasons for people to prove cases under Section Two, but in Texas, to get back to your question, there was a federal judge, and she said uh... yes this texas voter id law it does violate section two it effectively serves as a poll tax because of the cost of obtaining the necessary id and she said it is intentionally discriminatory she said that about six hundred thousand texans were affected by it that they were overwhelmingly black and latino and after her ruling which was pretty strong and forceful the supreme court still allowed that measure to stand in 2014 for the midterm elections so the more recent development last week that you were talking about is the fifth circuit and the fifth circuit's opinion while i think is a victory for voting rights in some ways you know as you pointed to is actually quite narrow because they said yes we agree this voter id law under section two it has a discriminatory effect Um, but they said you know lower court We want you to go back and look, and we know it's hard to try and divine motives, but we want you to see if it really did have a discriminatory purpose. And so, this is not a huge win in Texas. It's not. It's not without the um, some burdens in the ruling. And so, the question is not: Were the legislators aware of the discriminatory effect? But did they pass a the voter ID law because of that discriminatory effect? That's something that's very, very hard to prove. So I don't think we know what the lower court will decide
0: right now. Well, if the difficulties can be overcome in proving that, does that make case law really strong to uh, have a, a rippling effect throughout the country with other voter ID laws? You, you know, I, I don't think so, unfortunately. Um, In Texas,
1: I think there was a couple of, you know, pretty close to smoking guns where you had legislators talking about um, basically wanting to ensure that there weren't too many or too few minorities in districts. And in other states that passed voter ID laws, they were smarter. They didn't, they don't have those, you know, memos or emails or statements. So I Section 2 claims are very difficult to prove for the reason that we were just talking about with respect to Texas, which is that you really need to show discriminatory effect and intent, that motive. We pass this because it has a discriminatory purpose. And so while I think it will be... If there is a victory in Texas, I think that could be very important. I'm cautious of how broadly that would be applied in other states.
0: Well, Ms. Levins, can you uh, tell listeners uh, the exact kinds of ID that were uh, restricted to proving one's identity in Texas? Because I could think a lot of people that would not be carrying those particular kinds of ID, so that in terms of the impact that uh, it's considerable... For those margins.
1: So the the one that strikes out that sticks out in my mind is that student IDs uh, don't count, but gun owner IDs right.
0: Uh, do. Right. And it's so, like a demographic that they're d- they're defining by permissible identification.
1: Right. And I think what's important to remember is what are voter ID laws? You know, we keep saying voter ID. Well, what's the purpose? I mean, the only thing that a voter ID law would prevent is in person voter fraud you know i say i'm jessica levinson but i'm really not and they need to check my id uh, to make sure that's the case but in-person voter fraud just really doesn't happen it's incredibly rare this is really a solution in search of a problem and so what texas did is not only implement a voter id law which is a lot what a lot of other states have done but it also implemented one that targeted specific people. So it voter ID laws in and of themselves target certain people, and we know that. They target people for whom they don't have uh, at the ready the kind of voter identification that most of us do. And who are those people? They're disproportionately uh, minorities, and they're people who are lower on the socioeconomic scale. Who are those people? They typically vote Democratic. Now, the, what Texas did is they dove into that group and they went even further singling out just certain types of voter id so you know i think it's important when we're having a conversation about voter identification to to realize that it's it's, it's really not solving a problem i think it's um what it's really about frankly is a partisan power grab
0: For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Jessica Levinson, law school professor at Loyola University, here on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web, around the world at kuci.org. We're talking about the Texas voter identification law that's now under, uh, it's remanded back to the, just which jurisdiction? Uh, So
1: the Fifth Circuit sent this back to the Texas District Court? Texas District Court as the appeals court said the texas law will still be enforced until there is texas will still have their voter id law until there's a determination by the lower court on the issue of whether the voter id law had a discriminatory purpose which as you and i have discussed very difficult to go into the minds of legislatures and prove motive
0: and the timing here is pretty critical because we are now at august 2015 and the electoral machinery is building up and this is consequential as you said with just the margins here of 1.7 uh, percent voter suppression can really change the whole entire game well so what implications you've talked a little bit about that but let's break down what would anything happening in texas is does it give any fodder at all any uh, any uh, sort of Wind in the wings of the challenge of the North Carolina next, I don't know if it's next most restrictive voter laws.
1: Um, yeah, I think that in some ways the, the North Carolina law is actually the more restrictive law. Right. But it's the harder to prove because you don't necessarily have the good, quote unquote, good evidence um, like you do in Texas, where legislators are talking about what they specifically want to do with Hispanics and districts. So... You know, what does it mean in North Carolina? It's, you know, it's difficult to say because Texas has a different law. Okay. Um, It's a different court. uh, It's a different circuit. And it's a different set of circumstances surrounding it. Will it, you know, will it have any effect if there's a favorable ruling in Texas? Sure, absolutely. Those who are trying to overturn the laws in North Carolina, you know, again, some of the most restrictive laws that were passed, After Shelby, there was an omnibus bill that did a host of things, which I can talk about. Will the plaintiffs use language from that ruling? Absolutely. I mean, so North Carolina did something that was really kind of stunning in terms of they said, uh, we're implementing voter ID, we're eliminating a lot of early voting. We are making it more difficult to uh, vote provisionally. And so they had kind of a whole host of restrictions. Some of those have been overturned, but we're really still waiting on the the bigger Section 2 decisions.
0: And the 2014 electoral outcomes are not data to be mined here, to be presented in a challenge to those laws?
1: Um, I absolutely think that people will present data from the last elections and they will say... You know, look what happened in this case. There are, we, you know, we estimate that there are 300,000 people, let's say, who have difficulty obtaining these doc- these documents, and that's because you have to pay, you know, $10 to get your driver's license or whatever it is. But I think that past experiences um, will absolutely be useful. The issue is that all of the data has to go into either one of two buckets. It has to go into discriminatory effect, OK, and I think I think the data of the past elections does go into discriminatory effect, but it still doesn't fill the bucket of discriminatory intent.
0: OK. And are they equal sized, equally sized buckets? Uh, well, you need both. Yeah, they're both. and what, OK. So and it's not a matter of preponderance of one uh, being demonstrated, but it's that no. Both it's buckets e- have to come into the washroom.
1: Uh, exactly and you know as we're seeing from texas now just because you have a discriminatory effect and just because you may be aware of that effect that still isn't enough it's a it's a pretty high and difficult burden to show discriminatory intent and that's why shelby is so devastating for those jurisdictions that were under section five because it doesn't just change the fact that You have to find someone with the time and resources to sue to say, don't implement this law, but you have to show something more difficult. Under Section 5, the standard is, are minorities worse off? That's an easier standard to prove than did legislators say, you know what? I want to pass this law because I want to burden the rights of Hispanics to
0: vote. Okay. So... There's, there's no sort of forensic work yet to be done to to find the smoking gun in the North Carolina legislative process.
1: Uh, Well, they just, you know, they they just went through a trial, and I think the evidence was presented. Um, Was there? They didn't have the same, you know. Look, I mean, I'll say the same thing that I do about campaign finance laws. So when I give you a contribution, it's very rare that I say I'm giving you this money. And I hope that you'll vote in favor of my bill. I give you the money, and then two months later, I come forward and I say, I really w- hope that you uh, will take into consideration this new bill that I've proposed, or uh, excuse me, this new ordinance that I, you know, will benefit my business. So it, there's really no reason for anyone to say on the record, I did this because I want to burden minority votes.
0: There's plenty of code that. that- has no, no bearing on present on being proof toward that outcome. Then,
1: um, and that's what we're going to have to def- depend on judges to determine how much they're going to give credence to code.
0: Okay, well, uh, I've talked. There's 29 other states that have voter ID. So we've talked. I think about the probably the most uh, extreme uh, restrictive uh, kinds of conditions. Are there? Um, any other states that you want to bring out, Ms. Levinson, that uh, of concern? I mean, you can say, tick off, these are all uh, border, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, battleground states in terms of presidential electoral politics. But uh, do, you want, do you want to call any of the other ones 29? I mean, that's a lot of states that have set these up.
1: Um, it, it is a lot of states, and so I think that you know we need to look at uh, Wisconsin, for instance, yes. has a law that's been in question—a voter ID law. So I think that um, there are uh, 22 states that pass new restrictions. Um, eight of them pass through Republican-controlled bodies, and um, what we should look at all of those states because you know any loss makes a difference but i also want to point out that some states have expanded votes so this isn't merely one-sided i mean i know that you know i i feel like i'm leaving you and your listeners with a pretty depressing on a pretty depressing tone but um there have been studies that show um and i think that there's a great chart um At the National Conference of State Legislature's website that some states have actually worked to try and make it easier to vote for instance we're both in California in California we're working on things like same-day voter registration Um, we're working on things like automatic voter registration so that when you basically the burden is on you to opt out of registering to vote Um, so these some of these restrictions are going both ways what we're seeing is, or excuse me, some of the laws are going both ways. Some states are expanding, some states are contracting. Um, And, you know, what, what we're seeing in the states that are contracting again is that I think this is overwhelmingly about trying to maintain partisan advantage. And the problem with that is that maintaining partisan advantage is not the same as Um, I want to make sure that minorities can't vote, which is, you know, again, why these challenges are so difficult. But, you know, I think that we'll be looking, you know, Florida, Wisconsin, Ohio, all of the swing states, um, people will be mining the data for a long time to try and figure out uh, not just voter ID laws, but did new redistricting uh, laws change the outcomes? And, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about the president, but these redistricting laws, which are laws that draw uh, legislative district boundaries, are incredibly important, you know, for a variety of reasons, right. but they pick the people who represent us on a daily basis, the state centers and assembly people, the um, congressional uh, members, and um, redistricting is one of the greatest ways to try and maintain uh, the, your power as a a political, a party leader, and um, it's not well understood, but it is it is also absolutely affected by these Voting Rights Act
0: cases. And I, I just want to hasten to remind everybody that the the plurality of votes over all congressional districts in this country are Democratic votes versus Republican, but that redistricting has re-engineered that outcome so that is it is the reverse that the the there is a as you know in the house and in the senate a republican majority so that there was that and now i i wanted also ask the the students are as you're talking about the partisan advantages comes out of how the students ability to vote is affected, and they're not in the Voting Rights Act per se, as in they're not a minority, but is there any protection for students as a demographic in the Voting Rights Act?
1: No, I mean, we, uh, you know, as you know, we call out minorities based on race, and um, but not based on your status as a student. Right. And, so, I mean, we use other factors, but we don't. And so, um, you know, in in all these cases what does it mean for people who want to vote well it means that there's uh, there can be a little bit more burden on your ability to exercise your right to franchise but the problem is that the people who pass these laws win if we say you know what there's one more step I have to take I don't want to take it the solution that happens outside of the courtrooms, and this is easier said than done, is for people to say, I'm going to put aside that time, and I'm going to get the voter ID that I need, or, you know, I'm going to vote against this person who enacted this um, new redistricting plan. And so, you know, with respect to redistricting, with respect to voting rights in general, with respect to campaign finance, um, none of it is effective if the voter's Desire to overcome these, yeah. these
0: restrictions. Complacency creates the vacuum for that other power. <laughs> so, I and the, and another level, I guess, is to know your know your precinct and make sure everybody uh, you make sure everybody turns out. Make sure, like you said, first they have their ID together or they they have a means to get there. I mean, it's that classic sort of uh, uh, boots on the ground kind of voting turnout kind of campaign. So this this is uh, all this is one more piece is getting that voter ID in place in every household
1: um i I think that's exactly right you know again it's with respect to all of these decisions that i think roll back protections the quickest way for us to say that they're not it's not effective you know money isn't going to control politics or your new restriction on voting isn't going to control the outcome um, is unfortunately to put more burden on the voters and to say when possible Um, you need to step up and and um, create the extra effort that's a little you know that's easier said than done with respect to redistricting which is a kind of a separate animal and people don't get to weigh in in the same way
0: indeed well i really want to thank you Lori levinson for coming on the show it's Jessica Levinson, no problem. Je- I'm sorry. I'm low- I- I'm think- it's a compliment. I know, I, I, I know. It a compliment. I know she's always on there. And so I- I- when I first uh, found you uh, there, and I, I-, I was going to, tr- I-, I tried so hard not to do this, but anyway, it is- they-, they are both uh, esteemed legal minds in the Southern California, in the LA area pers- particularly. so. But Jessica Levinson, law school professor at Loyola University, uh, thank you for coming on Ask a Leader today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We'll be right back after a short station break to uh, bring on Alan Elsner of J Street. What a coup to have him on. Stay tuned. (laughs) Thank you for staying with us. That's Charlie Hayden's Lift Every Voice and Sing rendition. I thought I wanted to lift every voice in terms of the Voting Rights Act. And now we're going to lift other voices uh, amidst American Jewry here in this country. My guest in this next portion of Ask a Leader is J Street's Alan Elsner who's going to offer his organization's perspective on the Iran nuclear power agreement amidst the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee's campaign to oppose this arrangement. Alan Elsner is vice president for communications at J Street, the progressive voice of American Jewry established in 2008. J Street is a non-profit liberal advocacy group based in the U.S. whose stated aim is to promote American leadership to end the Arab-Israeli and Arab-Palestinian conflicts peacefully and diplomatically. And put another way by that organization, they provide a, quote, political home for pro-peace and pro-Israel Americans, end of quote. Alan Elsner, a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen, is a, 30 plus year veteran of the news business with the Reuters covering stories ranging from September 11, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center and conflicts in the Middle East to the presidential elections and the end of the Cold War. And most recently, the executive director of the Israel Project. He comes to us again from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Alan Elsner.
2: Hi there. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invitation and the opportunity.
0: Well, I really am glad you're on. You're the man, because it's uh, right up till uh, this morning, I, I heard on NPR an interview that Steve Innsky had with President Obama before the president went off to his vacation. It was just about the Iran nuclear program, and that the, all everything is, is in play here with this whole discussion. So... Though I want to back up a little bit. Since you last were on this show in March 2013, I'd say that J Street has had, has been cutting an increasingly larger profile. Now you're squaring off very publicly against AIPAC over the Nuclear Iran Program Agreement. So yeah, talk about that, what that strategy, what that program's been about, that campaign.
2: Well, we strongly believe that this is a good agreement, both for the United States and for Israel, so we've been supporting the President, and um, we're trying very hard to uh, mount a campaign, especially in the states where there are swing mem- members of Congress, to persuade them that uh, Americans support this deal, that a majority of American Jews support this deal, that this is a good deal for the United States, and it's a good deal. For Israel, um, I think it's kind of unfortunate that uh, AIPAC has taken the other tack, but, uh, um, you know, we respect their right to have their opinion and to work in the U.S. political system as well. And so, you know, I think this is a, a an argument that will be won on its merits, and uh, we're expecting this to come down to uh, a a fight in the Congress about whether the president's veto will be overridden, because we know that the Republicans are all against this agreement. um, And uh, as the president himself has said, they're not really against the agreement on principle. principle, They're just against everything that President Obama does. Right. So we expect that there will be, uh, the resolutions will be passed in both houses to disapprove the, the opinion on the, on the basis of uh, all of the Republicans, almost all of the Republicans, and some Democrats. And the president will then veto uh, those uh, resolutions, and then they will come back for a veto override, and that's when the real fight will be. And as you know, to override a veto, you need two-thirds of both houses of Congress. We believe that um, it's going to be a tough fight, it's going to be a close fight, we, but we think we're going to prevail.
0: So I want to then talk to the generalities. I've looked far and wide about what is the formal name given to the agreement. Everybody has a different title. I, I maintain this is not a deal. It's not commerce. It's an agreement. And I just want to remind listeners it's reached between Iran, China, France, Russia, the United Kingdom, the U.S., and it's, it's expressed as plus one, and that's Germany. So what does this diplomatic process mean for you? Because that's what J Street is about is the sort of strengthening diplomatic, toning diplomatic muscles.
2: Well, when he came into power, the president tried and succeeded in assembling an international, a broad international coalition to put pressure on Iran to negotiate uh, about the future of its um, nuclear program. And they managed to pass several uh, resolutions in the UN Security Council that placed um, broad international sanctions on Iran and had an effect on the Iranian economy. Iran was unable to export its oil, which is its main source of foreign currency, and its companies um, and entities were unable to have access to the international banking system. As a result of that pressure, the Iranians came to the negotiating table, and after a two-year negotiation, this agreement was struck. The agreement uh, blocks all of Iran's paths to uh, acquiring a nuclear weapon um, for the next 15 years, and, and, and probably beyond that, because a lot of the monitoring... And inspection regime continues indefinitely. In exchange for that, the Iranians, if they fulfil their part of the agreement, will get um, relaxation of those international sanctions. So um, the aim of the sanctions and the aim of the agreement is basically to stop Iran getting a nuclear weapon. It's not to make Iran uh, a nice country. It's not to stop Iran um, sponsoring international terrorism. Although uh, you know, we 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 obviously strongly oppose international terrorism. It's not intended to make Iran stop abusing the the, uh, human rights of its own citizens, although we think that Iran should do that. But all those are separate, uh, um, and they're not part of this agreement. This agreement does one thing, one thing only. It stops Iran acquiring a nuclear weapon.
0: Which is major. And I, I want to say that APAC's alternative—I mean, they—they they come back with terms that they would suggest should be a part of this agreement, but those terms are so so massive that no sovereign state would ever agree to them. So the alternative really isn't a, a workable uh, alternative in terms of a diplomatic process.
2: Right. I mean, the APAC and Netanyahu claim that they. What they want is uh, a better agreement. Go back to the negotiating table and get a better agreement, and that's just a fantasy. It's a delusion. The UN Security Council has now signed off on this agreement. Uh, five of the six countries that are the um, U.S. partners have signed off on this agreement. If the Congress decides to disapprove the the agreement and overrides a presidential veto, the United States will be alone in not fulfilling the terms of this agreement, and the Iranians will then be able to say, look, we did our part, um, everyone else did their part, but the U.S. Congress didn't go along. We're no longer bound by the terms of the agreement. What will then happen, I think, is that the international sanctions will crumble. The inspectors who are presently um, overseeing the Iranian uh, nuclear sites will be forced to leave, and the Iranians will be free to continue building their nuclear weapons without any kind of international constraints whatsoever. And then the only way to, uh, it's not to stop them getting a nuclear weapon, but possibly to delay them for a couple of years, would be uh, military action by Israel, by the United States, or by a combination. Now, if you're talking military action, you're talking about setting back the Iranian program by I don't know two maybe three years depending on how effective the military action is, but you're also talking about a chain of of unpredictable events in the Middle East. It's very easy to launch military strikes um, and uh, and and to invade a country as we found out in two thousand um, in two thousand three when we invaded uh, Iraq. Right. It's very difficult to see what the what the ultimate consequences of that kind of action will be. They're still unfolding, but. Uh, in the case of Iraq. So you're talking about setting back the Iranian program for a couple of years. And there, here you have an agreement which, which which freezes it and sets it way back for 15 years, so, which is preferable. I can't honestly understand the logic of the opposition to this agreement. I, I, I struggle very hard but uh, to understand where the opponents are coming from, but I, I, I just can't kind of get it.
0: And I want to go back a bit in history with where there was an opportunity like the one that we're presented with now. In 2003, George Bush sent an emissary to Iran, but to Tehran, but there was a sort of a bungled appearance. It was a a, a late appearance, and it was considered a snub and a willing negotiator that Iran was at the time that snub and stalled stopped in in its tracks any process at that time and so we've it took a long time to bring those negotiations back up to where they were the level they were in engaging iran in this diplomatic process so it's I, I keep going back to that value of this diplomatic product The both that the process is a product then the agreement is as another product and uh, it's I don't know if you have something to say about what's happened in 2003 and here we are 12 years later with this product so,
2: you know I, I let me just say this about the past although I don't think there's a tremendous Benefit in harping about the past and missed opportunities, but in, in, in eva- by invading Iraq, um, Bush George W. Bush destroyed the traditional balance in in the Persian Gulf, where Iraq and Iran constrained each other. They fought a very bloody and uh, very um, brutal war in the 1980s that went on for about eight years, Iran and Iraq were basically balancing each other. By going into Iraq and by toppling Saddam Hussein, we basically took Iraq out of the equation, and the Iranians have been able to take advantage of that by expanding their influence vastly throughout the whole region, so that you now have the Iranians playing a very big role in Iraq. They, they're playing a major role in Syria in the, in the civil war there. They're playing a role in, in, in um, Yemen. And, and of course, they finance Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. So Iran's regional reach has been vastly increased by the historic blunder that George W. Bush made in invading uh, Iraq. Now, having said all of that, the um, Obama administration came in with a different uh, perspective of building this international coalition to impose these tough sanctions against the Iranians and by inviting them to in- enter into a diplomatic process. He never took military action off the table and he was very careful to say and is still careful to say that if the iranians move ahead and and violate uh this agreement and try to break out and and develop a nuclear weapon well first of all under the agreement we have a lot more warning than we have now right now as it is today the breakout time the time needed for them to assemble enough material to build a bomb is estimated at somewhere between six weeks and three months under the agreement that time increases to one year. So all of the options that the United States has today, it will retain after this agreement, should the Iranians try to cheat. Uh, It doesn't take anything off the table, but it gives us much more time, much more early warning. They can't just dash to build a bomb without us discovering about it. And this agreement is unprecedented in, in that it takes all of the uranium from the time that it's mined to the time that it's milled to the time that it goes to, um, uh, into the enrichment process. And it follows all of that raw material through the entire process. Um, the other way that the, you can develop a nuclear weapon is, is through a plutonium. And the Iranians do have a plutonium, plutonium plant called Arak. And under the agreement, they have to basically dismantle Uh, that plant so it becomes incapable of producing the raw material for a nuclear weapon so um, right now immediately everyone becomes safer israel becomes safer Uh, the the possibility of the iranians making a dash for a weapon Uh, I think it becomes almost infinitesimal. It's not going to happen. They won't be able to do it without being detected. And if they do try to do it, we don't have to react within weeks. We have months to build a coalition to engage in more diplomacy. And ultimately, if the worst comes to the worst, that option of military um, action is still on the table. But the United States and the international community in Israel get vastly more flexibility under this agreement than without it.
0: For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Alan Elsner of J Street, talking about the Iran nuclear power program agreement that was recently voted, uh, negotiated, and voted uh, will be voted on in our congressional process coming up. We're talking about the matter of the monitoring that is unprecedented, as Mr. Elsner is just talking about the. The uh, I wanted to say that if the stability that this whole monitoring arrangement set up here—if uh, that stability uh, is lost on the the agenda of really—it's more more about maintaining the stability of a kind of a reactionary jury, both in in some of the, in the leadership in Israel as well as in certain political circles in the United States.
2: Well, when I listen to Prime Minister Netanyahu um, and other Israeli leaders, I get the impression that what they really want is to keep Iran in a bottle, to keep the sanctions on Iran indefinitely. Um, And they are, I can understand that they see Iran as a threat. Iran is a threat uh, to Israel. Iran um, does have leaders who vow to, Uh, wipe Israel off the map. Iran does have leaders who deny the Holocaust and make anti-Semitic statements. Um, And Iran is projecting its power in the region in a way that's worrying uh, to Israel. So the Israeli um, interest, I think, as defined by Netanyahu, is not to have an agreement or no agreement but just kind of continue the status quo indefinitely whereby the iranians uh, are shackled by these international sanctions and can't really develop their economy and, and increase their power Uh, The problem with that is that the point of the sanctions was to lead to a successful negotiation. The sanctions were not an end in themselves. They were never defined as an end in themselves. They were defined as a way to put pressure on Iran to come to the table. And they were successful in that. So I think that, you know, in terms of American uh, Jewish organizations, establishment organizations like AIPAC and the American Jewish um, committee and, and all the rest of them, I think they basically just feel that they have to follow whatever Netanyahu says. And, you know, it's precisely for that reason that J Street was founded, because we have maintained from the very moment of our inception that you can be pro-Israel and pro-peace without actually supporting every single thing that the Israeli government or that Israelis do. You can be pro-Israel without supporting the occupation. You can be pro-Israel without being anti-Palestinian. You can be pro-Israel without supporting the settlements. And you can be pro-Israel without blindly you know, following around um, um, uh, along like a bunch of lemmings when Netanyahu, who seems to have a personal obsession on this issue, declares his undying um, uh, opposition to this agreement. Um, Uh, But for the established Jewish uh, organizations, they feel that they can't do that. They feel that when um, Netanyahu says jump, they have to say how high. Now, the problem that they have is that the polling clearly shows that a majority of American Jews support the president and support the agreement. And there have been two major polls, one that we commissioned and another by the LA Jewish Week that show support uh, of the agreement, uh, outnumbering opposition to the agreement by healthy 20 points. So they are marching off to battle, but it's not clear to me that anyone is marching behind them. Obviously, some people are, but not the majority the majority are with us what they do have is they have very deep pockets they have the ability for people like uh, Sheldon Adelson to write them uh, 10 million 20 million dollar checks 30 million dollar checks uh, and and so they have almost unlimited financial uh, resources they can run ads in all 50 states they can they can do all kinds of things so uh, we've been fairly successful uh, in also raising not not anything like that mu- amount, but we've we've raised a respectable amount to put on a campaign to oppose them, and that's what we're doing. And uh, I think that, you know, before J Street was founded, there would have been nobody in the American Jewish community to make the opposite case. But now we're here, we're fighting, we're being very effective, we've built a lot of relationships on Capitol Hill, we have a lot of people who support us, and um, we are expecting to prevail.
0: So, Chuck, Charles Schumer, Senator Charles Schumer, senior senator from New York, came out last week. I, I don't think it was a surprise that he was, he, although he was being sort of sanctimonious about considering the options, it wasn't a surprise his position to vote against the agreement, right?
2: No, it wasn't a surprise. Uh, he's under enormous pressure, but you know the backlash that uh, developed from not from us but from democratic rank and file and from organizations like move on uh, I think has surprised him and since uh-huh. he made his statement, he's been notably silent. he hasn't been out there saying anything else. he hasn't been lobbying for the agreement. he just made his statement and uh, and that was it. There are other uh, Jewish members of Congress yes. who are in favor of this agreement if and many. yesterday Senator. Chats of Hawaii came out in favor of the agreement. Um, um, Dianne Feinstein is in favour of the agreement, and I think there are nine members of the Senate who are Jewish. We are expecting uh, a majority of them to be in favour of the agreement when all is said and done.
0: Right, Barbara Boxer. I mean, both of our senators in California and Bar-
2: Barbara Boxer is uh, in favour of the agreement. Uh, uh, Amy Klobuchar of um, Michigan uh, in favour of the agreement. Um, so, you know, there are still uh, a number who have yet to uh, to speak, and we'll see. But to suggest that the American Jewish community or American Jewish representatives in, in either House of Congress are all against the agreement is patently false, and we're expecting most to actually support the agreement.
0: And right, we have uh, there's uh, Senator Gillibrand and Bill Nelson. They both have considerable Jewish constituencies, that, and they both are going to vote the, uh, up on the agreement. And I think... Uh, Senator Schumer is known for being very media present, so his withholding comment, I think, speaks a great deal about maybe he's not going to give as much coverage to people who are thinking about voting against the agreement. So then I would like to find out, Alan Elsner, what you th- make of this dynamic now of of President Obama putting a fair amount of political capital on making sure this agreement is approved or or that the override is not successful. What does this mean in presidential electoral politics with the the American Jewry?
2: Well... First of all, let me say that uh, if this agreement, if the veto was overridden, that would be almost unprecedented in U.S. history. That uh, a president would would have the major signature foreign policy uh, um, initiative. Uh, of his presidency, overridden by the Congress, so I looked in the history books a you know there are veto overrides by from time to time, but they 're usually on kind of minor technical issues in one thousand nine hundred and eighty six President Reagan opposed um, sanctions against apartheid south africa and the congress the senate at that time was was had a a majority of republicans overrode his veto and imposed those sanctions the vote in the senate was 78 to 21 which was overwhelming bipartisan majority in favor of that Uh, but you can't say that uh, south african sanctions was the major issue of the reagan presidency he was dealing with the cold war in fact, just days after that override, he had a um, a summit with um, the Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. So this was not the major, uh, and the I, I think you have to go all the way back to the end of the First World War and the decision by the uh, U.S. Congress not to join the League of Nations to find a similar issue of this magnitude. So if this was to happen, it would be almost unprecedented for almost a century.
0: Well, we, um, yeah, but we have so yeah. many precedents that uh, in terms of, we never would have thought that a sequestration of federal funding would have occurred. So we've we got to prepare for some uh, some wicked sort of reversals that, that, um, in precedents well, like I, that.
2: Well, I don't think it's on the same um, but, scale as, uh, you know, sequestration of, of, of funding does not destroy the credibility of the president of the United States to, to conduct foreign policy. No, it doesn't. all but, of our international uh, partners. Partners, uh, as well as our international adversaries, so I think that, that that's really important to understand that that if this veto is overridden, you are basically uh, making um, Obama into a, a lame duck squared or cubed, a an international laughing stock. I don't think my language is is being too strong. Now, in terms of the presidential race, you have, I don't know how many, 16, 18, I don't know what the latest count of Republican <laughs> uh, presidential candidates, all of them against this deal, um, making statements uh, with uh, varying degrees of stupidity, and the most stupid probably being Mike Huckabee uh, in talking about delivering Israel to the gas chambers, which oh, I, yeah. as a son of a Holocaust survivor, find deeply, deeply offensive as well as stupid um hillary clinton is in favor of the agreement um but i think that once the agreement is passed um I don't know to what extent this is going to be an issue in the presidential campaign. I think that the campaign uh, will, as it always is, be dominated by, by domestic issues, by the economy, um, education, healthcare, care, uh, uh, things that affect Americans day to day. I think foreign policy will have uh, a place in the campaign. Immigration will be an important issue in the campaign. Um, race relations, women's rights, all of these will have an imp- a place in the campaign, and I think foreign policy will be one of them but I don't think that this is going to be a major factor that's going to change the shape of the campaign or the result of the campaign.
0: Maybe it does something very interesting in terms of uh, moving a lot of, realigning a, a bit of the coalitions and maybe having a maybe a more progressive outcome, in fact. So I we'll, we'll stay tuned with that. Well, I want to thank you, Alan Elsner, for coming on Ask a Leader, coming back to the show. And it, you laid out so many beautifully nuanced comments with such fortitude and i loved the casual interjections in there you really captured it on so many levels i couldn't be more grateful for your time today with us on the show
2: Well, you're most welcome and i always welcome the opportunity to speak to your listeners so thank you again for the
0: opportunity okay thank you bye-bye so talk with you next week thank you for listening everyone